This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, today, the Northern Secretary of the British Government, Chris Heaton-Harris, is going to be in the North. He will be talking to the party leaders. He had threatened that there would be an election, I think December the 15th was the date suggested, but he's held back from calling that election. For the moment, he will be, no doubt, exploring what can be done and how a new assembly can be created that functions and, of course, that the people in Northern Ireland badly need because there can't be legislation and the needs of the people can't be met without a functioning assembly in which Michelle O'Neill would be, on the basis of the last election, uh, the first minister, and Geoffrey Donaldson would be the deputy first minister. To discuss the North now, uh, we're joined by Newton Emerson. Newton is a columnist with the Irish Times and a commentator, a very good one, one of the best uh, there's been on the North. He also works occasionally for the Sunday Times and for the Irish News twice a week. And he joins us now from Belfast. Uh, Newton, you wrote a very interesting piece about King Charles' visit to the North. He visited on September 13th. You wrote the piece on Thursday, the 15th of September for the Irish News. It was very, very thought-provoking. And in essence, your story had the king being warmly greeted by Michelle O'Neill and not himself being all that warm when he encountered Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP. And you drew some very interesting lessons from those brief encounters. Can you tell us first about King Charles' disposition and what happened that morning? This has become a very uh, well-known incident, of course, and it's important not to read too much into it. You're you're very much looking at, uh, at subtle signals when you're trying to yes. understand the royal disposition. They were, but I don't think they were that subtle. Certainly, uh, in those early days after the, the Queen's death, and we were getting used to this uh, this new monarch. He arrived in Hillsborough Castle, the royal residence in Northern Ireland, and also the official residence of the Secretary of State. Uh, he was there to uh, to meet all the Stormont parties and uh, and a, a range of local dignitaries, um, essentially to receive 
there uh, on, on Stormont's um, mourning on, and, uh, and, uh, and expression of condolence for his mother's death. Yeah. That was led by the outgoing Speaker of the Assembly, who is Sinn Féin's Alex Maskey. Uh, and that was another opportunity to, to really send a pretty clear signal that Sinn Féin and the King were on good terms. Alex Maskey gave a very touching speech. The King clearly appreciated it and said so. And he took that opportunity as well to explain how his vision of the peace process and all parties working together was something he hoped to see. That was another clear slap across the face for the DUP, as far as I could see. And that all took place after this initial audience in an anteroom off to the main hall, where uh, King Charles was introduced to the main party leaders, had this uh, very uh, uh, clear uh, reproachment with Michelle O'Neill, as introduced by Alex Maskey. Alex Maskey uh, then uh, had a little joke at Geoffrey Donson, who was standing beside them, about no longer being the largest party. <clears throat> the, uh, Sinn Féin and the King laughed uproariously. Then he turned to Geoffrey Donson, and it, there was this horrifically, agonizingly awkward exchange where uh, Sir Geoffrey tried to introduce himself and get one up again on Sinn Féin by saying, you're in my constituency, actually. And uh, <laughs> King Charles said, oh, really? Am I? Uh, as if he didn't know, as if that wouldn't have been on the briefing and yeah. uh, and then said yes I think we have met before haven't we now uh, bear in mind that Jeffrey Donson Sir Jeffrey Donson has been a privy councillor for a, a decade or more I think that's right inside the the, the royal uh, the, the royal entourage it's a, it's a very important position and uh, and so the idea that King Charles doesn't know who Sir Jeffrey Donson is is completely implausible for him to even suggest that on camera. There were cameras there. Yes. I mean, this was the, this was the royal protocol equivalent of giving him a kick in the head. Now, that's yes. my interpretation of it. Obviously, interpretations differ. But, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that the, the king said, oh, it's here, is it? I have seen you. Uh, occasionally That's in, right, in yes. the past in the past no yeah. <laughs> no uh, this is this is part of uh, of the of the, uh, the emerging new style of the king Yes. Uh, which which is turning out to be wildly popular. Now, of course, we, we await the first scandal or problem for that all to turn on its head. Um, affection well, he, for ha he has actually, you know, I, he's been an environmentalist for about 50 or 60 years. Of course. And he was stopped going to COP27 by that wretched Liz Truss, which was an, an act of, kind of some kind of vandalism. But he, he is a man known to have opinions and to communicate them to politicians, which may cause trouble in the end. However, your piece describes this wonderfully. And, and also, I think, am I fair to say that it suggests how the relationships have changed and not in unionism's favor. And certainly Sinn Féin would have taken a lot of delight Oh yes, now, my per personal relationships are important, and uh, but but also, I mean, not not very strong in the case between Michelle O'Neill and King Charles. I think they've only met two or three times. Um, this is uh, this is about uh, recognizing political reality and serious people in politics, which includes the king. Um, managing that and uh, and and understanding <clears throat> understanding where uh, where things are going and uh, and how to engage with that. Um, and that's that's a much more devastating signal, I think, than a, than a, than any than any personal relationship issues that that are that are on display there. Now, so, um, the 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 visit of Chris Heaton Harris, who looks like a member of that uh, European Research Group, pretty hard nosed, may not be across the detail of the North as much as he 
probably ought to be. He, he didn't call his election. What can he do when he meets the leaders today? Has he any power to move, uh, for example, the DUP, who are the ones who are being recalcitrant at the moment? No, I'm afraid that his power has now completely drained away. Um, he is a former chair of the European Research Group, a former Conservative Party chief whip. Um, He is a serious figure and he had earned some respect here in the short time he's been here. He's um, had a very good relationship with Simon Coveney. He's um, not been afraid to stick it back to the DUP. And the same is true of his junior minister, Steve Baker, another former chair of the European Research Group. When these two arrived, Liz Truss appointed them in September. The DUP was cock-a-hoop. And nationalists were aghast. They thought that we'd been landed with some right-wing cabal of Brexiteers yes. uh, who would do whatever the DUP wanted. But uh, the, the opposite, of course, has happened. The, uh, the ERG men are very determined to stamp their own authority on Northern Ireland and on the process. They don't have any direct negotiation in the protocol talks, of course. The Northern Ireland office has nothing to do with that. So it's about setting the mood, setting the tone, helping to restore Stormont. Um, they've surprised people, I think, with their 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 hand rather hands-on approach, and uh, I think that most people would describe them as having been surprisingly even-handed. Yes. Now, Chris Heaton Harris's approach here was to say, "I've got to call an election if this thing falls down on October the twenty-eighth. That's the law." It was agreed a new decade, new approach with his predecessor and the five main parties. Um, there's a good there are good arguments for having an election. Why wouldn't you resort to democracy when the system has failed? An election is what shifted the last storm and collapse, finally, after three years of avoiding one. A general election in 2019 scared the DUP and Sinn Féin as their votes, votes dropped and they yes. went back to work. So, um, I, I mean, he, he was starting, people were starting to believe him. Uh, nobody did until about two weeks ago. Then they thought, is this guy serious? Um, he started to, uh, he was starting to, really send a signal that he might actually do this. And it appears that what happened on Friday in farcical scenes on the streets of Belfast during a press conference is the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, told him that morning, it seems, no, you can't call an election. It it looks like he was really going to do it, and he got pulled back by his boss. That has completely destroyed his credibility. Now, obviously, an election is never called without the Prime Minister say so. And in the past couple of weeks, we've not really had a Prime Minister who known who the Prime Minister would be. So Chris Heaton Harris was truly in charge at that point, and now suddenly it, it, it's all gone, and uh, and that that's it for him, frankly. And I also think that's it for an election. I, I don't think there'll be one. Uh, there's nobody else wanted one. Uh, nobody else wants one at all. Uh, there's no particular point to it in terms of shifting the dynamic at this stage, and nobody wants it before Christmas. Now. The the bigger picture for the British government would be its relationship with the European Union and as its economy stands at the moment and its future needs economically, a trade dispute with the European Union would be a big problem, I think, for uh, the British government. Are they likely, do you think, to negotiate seriously on the protocol and is an outcome that might be not what the DUP wanted. Are the DUP in a position to, as it were, freeze this process and stop a functioning assembly from happening, even if the British government and the EU can negotiate an agreement on the protocol? Well, sure, under the existing rules, if the DUP doesn't turn up as the largest unionist party, 
car sharing doesn't work. And it's not really politically plausible to change those rules without the consent of the largest unionist party, just as it wouldn't be without the consent of the largest nationalist party. And I think that the Taoiseach made a remark in the Financial Times on Monday in an interview to them about uh, about how he sees things playing out. The executive will be cobbled back together again somehow under the existing rules and then we'll spend the next four to five years negotiating new rules that will prevent any one party collapsing it again. I think that's what's meant to happen. It's a realistic time frame for uh, fixing this process. It's it's in the agreement that these kind of reforms need to be discussed continuously uh, with the British and Irish governments managing all party talks. So don't think of it in terms of changing the agreement or throwing it out or fixing it. This is the agreement. It's actually an undelivered part of the agreement that yes. we haven't had these continuous reforms over the past 20 years. We've had fits and starts and set-piece talks. So um, so that, I, th- that I think, is, is, is the likeliest thing to happen. Um, there uh, almost certainly will be a protocol deal. Um, I think that it's going to be a tough sell for the DUP because they've painted themselves into a corner. Uh, the EU is not going to compromise on its vision of single market security and and, and the European uh, and Court of Justice the single market is the number one item for the EU I, I actually think that, that that is one of the easier things to fudge and, and could be fudged because it's um, standard practice in trade deals for the European Court to only have uh, to only rule on aspects of European law and the deal will have a a higher tier court, an independent court that would be run by the EU and whoever it has the deal with, right. so, say the Canada free trade deal, the UK uh, free trade deal, um, the trade and cooperation agreement, it has independent arbitration. This is normal. Uh, and now the EU says we can't have that with a protocol because Northern Ireland is actually in the single market legally. But the same is true of Norway and uh, Liechtenstein and Iceland and th- their uh, in the European Free Trade Association, and its deal with the EU has a court as a separate court as well. Right. So I, I know I th- I think that of all the things that we've got ahead of us, I think that one can be fixed. Actually, it's the paperwork um, at sea border inspections. Inspections can be reduced to very little, but the yes. paperwork everyone has to complete and the cost of that, I think that's going to be a very tricky knot to cut. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, Newton, it's 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, or as, as it's now called, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement to keep everyone happy. And next December, that agreement will be celebrated and the 25th anniversary. Was it designed to be an organic document that would drive development? Was it designed to stop the murder, the violence, to decommission the IRA? It has achieved some negative results. Um, The Unionist Party suffered and David Trimble suffered. The SDLP suffered gravely. They're out of the picture, really, and the unions are out of the picture. And the voters have gone to Sinn Féin and to the DUP largely. So my question to you is this, and my question to myself, indeed. Has the Good Friday Agreement, celebrated though it was at the time, outlived its usefulness now? Uh, no, uh, the answer to the first part of your question is uh, it's very much designed as an organic document. And when you read it, it specifies that there was to be, for example, a fundamental review of all its structures within three years. Uh, followed Did by, that happen? Nope. In fact, it was suspended at three years after operation because of um, decommissioning and, uh, and the row over IRA spying. Yes. Uh, there was also then uh, the year following that, this is specified in the agreement to be uh, an academic conference again to, to review it all. That's what will actually take place next year and the anniversary in April at Queen's University. So we're, what, what is that? That's 20 years. We're only 20 years late with the specified organic changes. Uh, other mechanisms inside it are annual reviews of every institution to improve their efficiency and fairness. That is the exact expression. And where the parties can't agree to those changes, the British and Irish governments are entitled to impose them. Uh, and that, that might be considered unworkable political in political terms, but that's the agenda the agreement sets. Nobody imagined this ugly scaffolding, as the SDLP called it, would be up for the rest of our lives. Power sharing was meant to evolve, and the governments were meant to push us towards a more normal coalition system, still with community protections. Um, that was meant to be uh, assisted by a Bill of Rights, but the design of the Bill of Rights process was uh, was faulty. It was specified incorrectly and has fallen apart. So we might need to change that part of the of the agreement. Uh, but they, there are, I mean, there's no question that it was an organic process, and the problem with it is that that process uh, has seized up. So uh, I think that it's it's a great shame and danger that people at the moment are saying in this latest collapse, well, uh, you know, let's just throw the whole thing out. It doesn't work. It's not been worked. That's why we're in the problem we're at. And there's no realistic alternative. The, the debate people had last week about joint authority, I think, really reveals the um, the extent of frustration and the shallowness of the debate, because if you were, yes. if you were, there's, if you were to design joint authority, something that doesn't exist anywhere in the world, that would take you another twenty years of a peace process if you could possibly manage to get everyone to agree to it. Yes. Uh, I know that the, it's daunting to think of spending the next five years, as the T shock suggested, discussing reform of mandatory coalition, but that is 
a far faster and more realistic and likely way of managing the problem than anything else that's being suggested. On the night of the Good Friday Agreement, I was working on my Drive Time radio show and the two guests I had were Kevin Myers in studio and Eamon McCann on the phone. Mm -hmm. Eamon McCann predicted that what would happen was not going to be so wonderful. He said the unionists and the SDLP, the unionist party that is, and the SDLP would be frozen out. People would flee to their tribal homes in the case of Sinn Féin for Catholics and for Protestants to the DUP. Eamon was extremely circumspect about the prospect of this being a, a bright new dawn. Now, he was right, wasn't he? Yes, uh, but that doesn't mean that, uh, th that that lets the UUP and the SDLP off the hook. I mean, they were given control of the system, a system designed to facilitate them. They came in with huge votes. The SDLP actually had the largest vote of any party at the start of, uh, at the start of devolution. Yes. And had they made it work, had they, had they formed a genuine new partnership, um, they had an opportunity to see off uh, the, the threat that came from the extremes. But they were, they were, they were picked off um, uh, the, in the UUP's case by um, a faction led by Jeffrey Donaldson, of course, who's now, now back, <laughs> back like, a, you know, like a specter from the past. Yeah, and there were sort of, before I interviewed Jeffrey Donaldson many times, and before him and in the same party, there were people who had more extreme views at least that's what yes. it, it seemed from his. No, no, it was quite when they failed, um, and I think it was by far the UUP's uh, great. It was mostly the UUP's failure uh, under extreme Sinn Fein provocation. Sinn Fein didn't deliver its commitments under the yes. agreement until about 2010, and then had to be threatened by the White House, basically. So um, the um, the process was then designed, redesigned. Uh, instead of building consensus from the middle out, it would include it from the edges in. Sinn Féin and the DUP got a system designed for them at St. Andrews. And that was worth trying as well. And that did succeed for a while. Um, and it, it has, I mean, the wheels really fell off it, I think, um, largely due to Brexit. I think that in 2016, yes. there was a, there were signs of it working uh, very well. Sinn Féin was unhappy with the entrenchment of the status quo. Uh, I mean, that, that's, I think that's the fundamental, that's the fundamental issue, uh, a fundamental issue for, for Republicans with any peace process. But, um, you know, to, to say that this was, this was doomed to always entrench division, uh, ignores the fact that it presented a, a unique opportunity for the center ground to deal with that. The alliance has now filled that role. Yes. And, uh, and it was not modified all the way along as intended. Now, Newton, I talked to Billy Hutchinson, for example on this podcast and indeed on my radio shows in the past uh, as one example to get a feeling for his views uh, and the views of loyalists and working class loyalists in particular. He says to me, I'm British. I was born British. I will always be British. And I'm sure he speaks for hundreds of thousands of people in the unionist loyalist uh, community, how can they be expected to feel un-British? 
Uh, well, well, now let let's be clear here. Billy Hutchinson speaks for the the you know a, a handful of hundreds of people who have yes. voted for who have voted but for. But he has him. been elected. He is a councillor on Belfast City yes. Council, and he is a leading sort of voice for loyalism. Don't take, don't, I mean, very very few people have a transactional national identity, obviously, and you know that's got nothing to do with whether or not they vote for Billy Hutchinson. It applies across the board. Yeah. Uh, the idea that there might be a, a fluid group of people in, in the middle who could switch their national allegiance um, has turned out by by a statistical miracle to uh, to be a, well, it's about three percent as far as we can see from polls. Yes. Of the, um, uh, and that and it just so happens that both communities are so finely balanced that that three percent could be the swing constituency. Uh, so wherever happens, we've uh, we've essentially got to accommodate vast numbers of people who are in the wrong country, as they perceive it. Yes. Let me ask you for your own personal view. I mean, is there a possibility that a federal arrangement might work? No, I don't think so at all. And I think it's only proposed uh, by parties in Dublin because they want to preserve Northern Ireland as some kind of of, uh, of reservation where uh, all its problems are walled off behind a, still behind some kind of border. If there was a, a vote for a United Ireland in a border poll, that could only happen by definition if there was a nationalist majority in Northern Ireland, effectively. Yes. And in that case, why would that nationalist majority cooperate with still being in Northern Ireland, still behind a border, uh, would even the unionist minority want to be trapped in there with them? Um, no, the the, uh, the so the, are we looking at an insoluble problem in your view? No, uh, no, you're just looking at an uh, you're just looking at a at a nonsense argument by some parties in Dublin that um, <clears throat> that that uh, you know Northern Ireland would uh, continue as a polity. After a majority had voted to disband it, that's just not going to happen. Now, the, the reason that argument ha- appears to have some legs is the Good Friday Agreement only frames uh, an Irish unification as a switch of sovereignty. Yes. So, in other words, we, you just turn the you just turn the polarity over, but everything else stays exactly the same. But of course, that's what it says because the Good Friday Agreement negotiations were not a negotiation on a united Ireland, nor could they be. So they just left it at that point. Uh, I mean, it, it's a it's a a scenario that applies one millisecond after the vote takes place, but yeah. then, then you know, it's up to the people of Ireland alone to decide. Now, the logical extension of the Good Friday Agreement into United Ireland is not for Northern Ireland to continue as an Irish province, as an Irish uh, devolved province, yes. but for the power-sharing protections of Stormont to apply in the Doyle. Right. And that's the very last thing, it seems to me, that anyone in the Republic wants to hear, because uh, fundamentally, the, the view there seems to be, uh, um, you know, minorities only require protection uh, from them, not us. Yes, indeed. Which is, exactly, now, which is, of course, exactly the reason why those protections would be needed. I mean, serious people, Bertie Ahern, for example, who is as serious as any politician gets in terms of the sort of mechanics of politics... He expects, he has said, he said it on this podcast, in fact, that there should be or could be a border poll before 2030. Other people have even shorter timescales. Michal Martin, the President Taoiseach, is under some pressure in his own party because he's uh, he, wa- he wants a shared, agreed Ireland and talks about that. He is not clamoring for a border poll, but there are many in his party who 
uh, who are well uh, well i mean are they or are they just trying to maneuver themselves around Sinn Féin i mean nobody really seriously believes that this is that a border poll is imminent or that nationalism could win it well bertie is out of politics in a, in any meaningful way uh, newton and he is a very shrewd observer of the way things move i don't sense any feeling down here among people that we want a border poll or we want a united Ireland. It's somewhere way over the distant horizon. Well, Hearn did say himself that there was no hope in hell of it passing without a decade of preparation. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, that in, in political terms, that's just putting it on the never, never. Uh, I think that um, uh, parties in the Republic are thinking about how they position themselves around Sinn Féin after the next election. Yes. And uh, they're going to need to either align with its vision of uh, a united Ireland or distinguish themselves from it. Uh, so I think you've se- you're seeing that jockeying going on. Uh, it's going to be a bumpy four to five years, I think, um, in terms of the mood, uh, north and south. But uh, there's not going to be a border polar united Ireland. I, I just think that's completely implausible. Well, so do I. But there is a kind of feeling among the political class down here that it ought to happen as the logical extension of the Good Friday Agreement. Yes, well, uh, the Good Friday Agreement requires the Secretary of State to call a border poll if a nationalist victory appears likely to him. And, uh, you know, there are, um, I mean, there there are demographic changes. Uh, Nationalism uh, is still not the largest political grouping here, but if that were to be the case, then I think that, that, you know, that that there would be stronger arguments for holding a poll. Uh, But, uh, you know, then, then nationalism would lose it. So yes. it's, it's for it's for nationalism to figure this out. Uh, I, you know, I think that the, that that is that is the trap they're in. There's almost a, um, you know, it's it, it, it's it, it's almost a, a danger to campaign to assertively for a poll because there might be one which there's no yes. prospect of winning. <laughs> a final question, Newton, about the present impasse between the DUP and the rest. Do the Tories? Uh, does Chris Heaton Harris have the power to make the DUP participate in a functioning assembly that gives the people of Northern Ireland the kind of government they need, particularly given the economic crises that are here and need to be fixed for the people of Northern Ireland to have decent government? No, uh, he certainly doesn't. And in fact, I don't think even the Prime Minister could uh, could do it. Um, the, 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 the prospect of the DUP returning to Stormont is entirely internal. It wants to, it needs to, it knows it needs to. Um, and there is a deal coming that will provide it with the opportunity, the excuse it needs to call this off. But remember, this is largely just a face-saving exercise for the party after its Brexit yes. mistakes. Um, the, the main risk of it getting back to Stormont is that it uh, has become increasingly scared by hardliners uh, 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 and, and has, has stepped up its demands for a deal to the point where it might not be realistic or plausible for it to sell that to the unionist electorate. So There are, uh, some, peop- there are some people down here who say, uh, no, I'm not one of them and I don't uh, subscribe to the idea, that it's simply the image of Michelle O'Neill being first minister, 
Yes, well, and, that's and, not very wide, D- very wide. Yes, and the DUP having to put up Sir Geoffrey as deputy first minister is just a no-no. Uh, well, I mean that that's now uh, almost universally believed across nationalism, which which whether they're right or not creates its what own do you reality. Think? <clears throat> um, I think that um, that it's not the case, and and the reason for that is that um, within. Literally seconds of the polls closing in May, the DUP said, oh, of course we'd nominate a deputy first minister. Uh, they were just refusing to say they would, as was the UUP in that election campaign, because they didn't want to uh, talk about losing or they were they were embarrassed about the TUV, accusing them of being a bridesmaid to Sinn Féin. Yes. Uh, however, um, I think that the, there are probably inter- deep internal disquiet in the party about it. There's also disquiet about Sir Geoffrey uh, apparently not planning to stand himself. Yes, because he holds his Westminster seat, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And I think people feel betrayed about that uh, in, inside the DUP. But he has said that he's going to be Deputy First Minister. He has said that the party will nominate one. And at this point, why say that if you're not going to do it? Because, you know, now the the, um, the claim by the TUV that, that they were going to be a bridesmaid to Sinn Féin, well, he said, yes, well, we are. You know, so so I think that um, I think that having said having said they would, it's really not um, it's really no, no no longer it's no it's no longer an issue really. Um, the, the the problem the DUP now faces is that they've annoyed nationalists so much that they've guaranteed even if there's another election, Sinn Féin will win it again. And you think the British government will do a deal with the EU? Um, I think that uh, the, the deal is there. Uh, it, the outline of the deal is there. It's probably quite a good deal, uh, relatively speaking, in terms of what's available. In the longer term, of course, it will get better because the UK has to have a closer and closer yes. relationship with the EU. Um, so, so yes. Uh, however, uh, the, the EU is a um, pretty duplicitous and obstinate negotiating partner, um, and. Uh, you know, I think that 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 is a bad omen. I think so. It's going to be it's going to be a pretty weak deal. I think. Um, there also, uh, you mentioned a trade war. I think that the threat of that is a bit overemphasized. It's a long process to start trade sanctions against the UK. It's pretty drastic, and they'd be pretty limited if they came in using well, the, they the are, standard process. Well, they are. I mean, the EU was the biggest customer for by far for British goods. Uh, but what, what actually happens? What actually happens when these infringement proceedings begin is there's about a year of um, you know legal action, and then there's you know a tariffs brought in on one or punitive tariffs brought in on one or two yes. things, and uh, and you know it's it's um, it, it's not like gunboats lined up in the channel or I don't you know, know about that. It's, it's not like the gate. Well, that's what the fishermen well do. But <laughs> <laughs> it's not like well, that's true. It's not. It's not like the gates are, are closed at Calais or anything yeah. like that. So. I think I think trade war is a bit of a hysterical term, frankly. Now they don't want disruptive relationships with the EU. It's bad for the markets. It knocks economic confidence. But uh, I think you know, like as with Stormont reform, trade talks with the EU are a very long, boring process. That's just all there is to it. Okay, Newton, we're very grateful to you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much indeed. That's Newton Emerson, and you can read his column in the Irish Times every Thursday. It's thoughtful. Uh, it's occasionally amusing. And it's uh, first-class journalism. Thanks to Newton. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.